The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. And welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. I spoke to Richard yesterday about Britain's new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. We talked about how she might govern, her likely response to the cost of living crisis, and how she's far from the obsessive ideologue she's portrayed as in some quarters. We also talked about the devastating floods in Pakistan, and about the death and legacy of the late Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. So we now have the result of the Conservative Party leadership election and Liz Truss will, as was widely expected, be the new Prime Minister. Now, the last time we talked, you were pretty scathing about Truss and you argued that the Tories were making a mistake in removing Boris Johnson, uh, a politician with a very particular populist appeal and an ability to weld the quite fractious Conservative voter coalition together, which none of the other leadership candidates seem particularly likely to emulate. Have you seen anything during the campaign to suggest that Truss is a more capable politician than you previously thought? No. Um, although, first of all, I, I do want to claim victory. I said early on, right from the start, this was going to be Truss. Um, <laughs> and Seymour was right, and I don't often get to say that. Right, so first of all, um, her, her man, management of the campaign shows her to be what was pretty obvious. She's not very bright, but she's got cunning. She... Uh, has uh, a certain uh, sort of uh, opportunistic uh, capability. Um, she knew how to speak to the rank and file. Um, I don't want to overstate this because when we look at it, Truss's win was a bit less than expected. And I think that might reflect a, in part a shift against her in the final week of the campaign due to her inability to say anything coherent about what she would do about the energy prices issue. I also think that uh, although she will be opportunistic enough to spend a lot of money in the short term to manage the energy crisis, we're going to see payouts, price freezes possibly. And this is all signaled by Quasi Quarting's uh, uh, article in the FT. It's uh, the, also the, the likely next chancellor. Yeah. Uh, and Quarting's, um, uh, I mean, I don't uh, like him or his politics, but he's he's pretty smart and, um, you know, quite possibly a prime minister. But uh, he s- sort of signals that there will be a- an immediate action to bail people out of the energy crisis, followed by a long-term restructuring of the state, uh, a so-called lean state, on the basis of an anti-managerial form of conservatism. And that suggests that they're still committed to the uh, ideological fundamentals uh, on which Trust ran her campaign. But she's going to find it difficult. There's limited room for manoeuvre here. They're going to have to borrow a lot. The rate of crises afflicting the British polity is increasing. It's pretty hard to predict what the economy will look like in 2024. But all signals have been that it's going to be dire in 2023, though perhaps inflation will uh, be mitigated shortly. It may not be as bad as had been expected. So um, 
I think it's going to be a, a continuation of what was going on under Boris, and this is one of the reasons why I said it was a mistake to think getting rid of him would solve anything, because what really happened is that they lost control of the agenda. You had COVID-19, the supply crunch, the war uh, with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the energy crisis. Uh, One thing after another has deflected them from their efforts to radically restructure the British state. Although I think that one thing we're likely to see develop uh, aggressively if, if trust can get away with it is the free ports. And I'm sure you've seen uh, the maps of these free ports. They're, they're not ports at all. They're huge areas uh, encompassing cities and towns. Um, and these are areas in which they will be able to get rid of uh, minimum wage laws, safety laws, etc., as much as they can. Um, so the, this is the direction, but it's a highly combative, confrontational direction to take. One where Truss has a limited... Um, mandate, none from the public, not much uh, public enthusiasm for her. Uh, Can I also point out that although Truss lost among MPs and won among members, the gap wasn't that massive. She obviously represents a significant layer within the parliamentary party who was distrustful of Boris. I don't overstate this. I don't think there's much enthusiasm for her personally, but I think, uh, I mean, she was in third place right up to the fifth ballot of MPs. But her agenda, declaring fidelity to Boris while departing sharply from the so-called socialist measures, reflects a, a sizable constituency within the parliamentary party. So there's some enthusiasm, there's some basis for trust and what we might call trustism in the parliamentary party, plenty in the rank and file, but even there... One of the things you uh, sort of see from Tory members is that they think that they're a lot more Thatcherite than they are. I think uh, there's a lot of ideological misrecognition taking shape here. And I dug into the income and wealth of Tory members just to figure out where they're coming from, where their interests lie. Uh, because we're often told that they're prosperous and, you know, older, white, southern English, male, etc., etc. There's some truth to that, but they're actually not really very wealthy. They're disproportionately middle class. Um, they come from the upper ends of the working class, if they're working class. They tend to be older. They're more likely to own their houses, have savings. They basically are the, that layer of the British population uh, that derives whatever wealth they have from property rather than from financial assets. And they have experienced a relative decline over the last decade in which they, you know, I mean, uh, Bank of England's strategy of quantitative easing has been pretty good for asset owners, but it hasn't been good for savers. And so if you're a middle class saver, you haven't done very well out of that. And outside the southeast, it hasn't actually been great for property owners, you know. Uh, Price rises um, have been good in London, the southeast, not so much elsewhere. So I think that there's a sense in which they have construed this uh, struggle as one between woke globalists and a kind of populist free market nationalism. But it's a curious kind of populism which, you know, it's not even ideologically opposed to nationalization in some cases. Uh, I don't think Tories are going to be up in arms if Liz Truss uh, pivots abruptly to start spending a lot of money. Uh, I think they would recognize that as a necessity. 
Would you, in fact, say then that Johnsonism, say, uh, a, a conservative politics which is more uh, relaxed about intervening in that in that kind of way, is much more popular amongst the conservative members than it is amongst the parliamentary party, who seem to have tired of it, and and part of their hope was that they would return to a more sort of explicitly Thatcherite agenda. Yeah, hello. I think that again, as I said, that there's. A lot of the current situation turns on ideological misrecognition. So I think there was a lot of support for Boris that wasn't necessarily predicated on anything concrete that Boris was talking about doing other than, you know, getting Brexit done, crushing John, uh, Corbyn, etc., etc. Um, I think there was probably more division and more ambivalence about the, the Brexit Heza thing. Uh, you know, the idea of using the state to intervene, um, in, in industry. But I think with sufficient initiative, policy initiative, leadership, will to power, call it what you will, um, a lot of people would have gone along with that kind of agenda, but they never really got it off the ground. Then there's one other thing I think culturally is interesting here, you know, the attempt to refer back to Thatcherism, and Liz Truss is notorious for her attempts to cosplay Thatcher. I think this reflects a certain late British style. And we've seen this a lot. I don't know if you've, um, just talk about it culturally. Look at what's uh, in the album charts. It's Fleetwood Mac, it's ABBA, it's Queen, it's Elton John, it's Rod Stewart. Look at who was performing at the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this year, which is the number one broadcast watch this year. It was all these people. It was Queen, it was Elton John, it was Rod, Rod Stewart. Um, look at, uh, you know, the, the big shows that are on at the moment. A lot of them are, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals or uh, some sort of ABBA show that's on at the moment. There's a lot of this stuff. And I don't, I don't say this to say, oh, it's all about nostalgia, reactionary nostalgia, although I think there's an element of that. But there's just a, a sense in which um, the political imagination is being run around, uh, run in loops in much the same way as the cultural system is because of this algorithmic tendency to endlessly produce spin-offs and rehashings of the same. Um, so we haven't really, I mean, really the Tories would need to break out of the idea that it's uh, it's Thatcherism versus one nation conservatism. Um, that, those are not the reference for t- references for today. Um, they would need to come up with a new language, a new idiom. But, uh, you know, instead they're talking either in this um, sort of uh, uh, anti-socialist Thatcherite ultra idiom, you know, in which Trust claims that the Her Majesty's Treasury is an output, uh, outpost of socialism, or we're getting a kind of a more traditional treasury politics from Sunak, in which he tries to reinstate the friend-enemy distinction on, along different lines. I mean, I know that you will have noticed, and he did notice, the um, uh, sinophobic stuff, the stuff about banning Confucius Institutes, basically an attempt to consolidate a broader conservatism, which is less domestically militant, but internationally aggressive on a, a sort of neo-Cold War basis. Um, so I mean, that, that seems to align more with Truss's instincts than the anti-woke rhetoric that characterised more some of uh, the other people in the campaign. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's uh, and, and uh, Sunak felt the need to try and do a bit of this anti-woke stuff. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that anti-woke is not necessarily her forte, although she will, I think, prove to be quite right-wing on these issues because it's an easy mobilising issue. Uh, if you saw those interviews with Tory party sort of grassroots members outside their um, 
meetings and uh, hustings uh, that were conducted by Joe, the political website. Um, there's quite a strong sort of uh, feeling among many of these members that woke is the big issue of the moment because woke doesn't just stand for trans rights and things like that, although obviously they are violently hostile to that, but for this uh, sort of globalist blob, you know, a globalist entity that's taken over. And this is a continuation of Brexity politics, a, a group of uh, elites that are not particularly loyal to the nation, they're too cosmopolitan, they're too politically correct. Um, and despite the fact that we've had Brexit, these people are still in charge. And you see this a lot in right-wing commentary, that uh, you know Brexit was achieved, but the revolution that it was supposed to affect uh, in, in destroying uh, the dominance of the woke blob at the uh, top of the state has not been carried through. I would expect that stuff to continue, and trust is going to have to defer to it to some extent. On the issue of price freezes and, and the prospect of, of massive borrowing and, and, and so on, do you think it's likely that this is perceived as an electoral necessity, that they would need to do this? They would need to do something about the cost of living crisis and, and do something to increase growth somewhat in the, in, you know, in the next couple of years in order to win an election. And that their perception is that they do that, they win the election, and then they pursue what they believe to be their real agenda. But it may in fact be the case that they just continually find themselves bounced into these kinds of uh, policies, which of course also characterise the COVID-19 response. Yeah, because every time they uh, implement um, a disaster response, which forces them to break with uh, prior uh, sort of principles of neoliberal uh, management, uh, in this case, you know, you're not supposed to control prices, but they will end up having to do that. Every time they do this, they undercut the basis of a kind of Thatcherite lean state ideology. And I think that's where it's going anyway. I don't think it's just about electioneering, though. If you look at the state of the British economy, if you look at uh, what businesses are saying, they're crying out for some sort of intervention. They need it. It's not just working class people who are going to suffer, uh, though they will suffer the most. But if you're running a pub, for example, and pub owners uh, make up quite a lot of the Tory sort of base, uh, you know, like especially in terms of the membership, um, energy prices are killing you. Um, uh, I mean, the, the costs that you're going to end up paying just to keep your pub going means you're going to have to shut down. So I think that there's uh, an element of that. And I think, you know, if it was about electioneering, Truss would presumably have had more of substance to say about this beforehand. I'm not really sure why, um, you know, everything has been done in the way that it's been done in terms of uh, trust sticking hard to a small state line, but with increasing behind the scenes signals to the Telegraph and other outlets that there may be have to be some sort of intervention. I'm not sure entirely why that happened, but I can't imagine that that has been very good for the Tories' um, approval ratings. Yes, perhaps that's a uh, regarding the Conservative leadership election. That's a, a safety first approach. You know, not giving too much detail so that it can't potentially be attacked by Sunak. And presumably they were aware that trust was well ahead, and there was no need to say very much. Although, as you say, it's not good for the party in the long term. Yeah, I, I, and I think that the real difficulty here is that we have an opposition that probably can't, for any sustained period, take advantage of this. Just today, the, you know, the Labour Party has said 
to its members that it's on an election footing. It expects there to be a general election uh, fairly soon. Um, and that might happen, um, although even if it doesn't, we've only got to wait until 2024. Um, but uh, Keir Starmer's big message, uh, as you'll have seen from the video that was put out um, earlier today, Although it mentioned, um, you know, freezing energy prices, which is going to quickly look like, um, you know, that, that, the advantage that he gets from that is going to be quickly wiped out if, uh, Liz Truss basically borrows a lot of money and spends on handouts and tax cuts and, um, price caps and all the rest of it. Cause we've heard a figure of something like a hundred billion pounds. Which is way more than the twenty six billion pounds that he's talking about. So he's going to lose the advantage of that. But a- apart from that, uh, his main thing was talking about crime and policing and all the rest of it. Not that that doesn't have a certain resonance and salience. It's just not the issue today, and uh, that's extraordinary. And I think it reflects the fact that they continue to think in terms of what Red Wolf's focus groups are saying, meaning that I think that. Even though Truss is a very damaging leader for the Conservative Party, um, there's no guarantee that that means Labour will be able to capitalise on that. They should be able to, but we've seen the Tories polling a lot worse in the past. And when they have been able to, like for example, uh, during the poll tax era, and when they've been able to pull back from the controversial policies in question, they've been able to win. So... I would say it's a chaotic and open-ended situation still, and that Liz Truss's dire performance uh, will provide a lot of entertaining moments, uh, a lot of frightening moments, but it's not necessarily obvious that the current opposition is going to be able to cope with that. One of the slightly strange attack lines they've gone with is to describe Truss as this sort of very hard line ideologue, intensely committed to small state conservatism and so on. But Truss is someone whose politics has, has certainly not remained static. She's a f- former Liberal Democrat who once you know, famously called for the abolition of the monarchy. Much more recently, she shifted from opposing exit from the European Union to becoming an enthusiastic supporter of Brexit. So it seems you know, not like a particularly effective strategy. And, and as you say, it seems they're already being wrong-footed by her apparent readiness to embrace very large-scale borrowing. If that's not the right attack line, and, and you know, if we sort of imagine for a moment there were an effective opposition, what do you think would be an, an effective way to attack the Truss government? Although, of course, it's, you know, it's very early days, I know. Sure. Um, well, I have some sense of, of what I think would work. Uh, I think that, first of all, just to contextualise the ideology stuff, we got a lot of this during austerity. And it's a, it's a useful way to oppose whatever is being done, or at least oppose it to some extent you know, in a pragmatic way, um, without opposing the whole thing. And to do so while signaling that one is in tune with the mainstream common sense. So you attack ideology, because everybody opposes ideology. Ideology is bad. Ideology is baggage. Ideology is what other people have. Or at least that's what they think. So I think that there's a sort of a sense that this will endear them, or at least diffuse uh, sort of attacks from the right. But the big problem here is that, you know, if you look at really intensely ideological leaders in British politics, who's the one that comes to mind, first and foremost? It's Margaret Thatcher. 
I mean, nobody to this day doubts that she was an extremely efficacious leader. And I'm not claiming that Truss is going to be efficacious, because uh, I don't think she is as ideologically hardened as Thatcher was. I don't think she's a class fighter in the way that Thatcher was. Uh, I don't think that she's got the intellectual metal that Thatcher did. And I don't think she understood her enemy uh, as well as Thatcher did. Um, but, um, you know, if we assume that ide- ideology is a bad thing, then we're going to misapprehend most of what has happened in British politics. The leaders who achieve something tend to be strenuously ideological. Blair, I think, was a hardline ideologue. You know, for all the talk that he obeyed with opinion polls and so on, he had a very clear sense of what he wanted British society to look like, in what direction a British state should go globally and domestically, and he largely saw through the kinds of changes that he wanted. So did Thatcher. So I think that um, the critique is, as you say, going to flounder, because that's not really the case with trusts, and it's so much better for them that it isn't. I would say quite clearly that uh, we should be talking about uh, them and us. We should be talking about a friend-enemy divide. If they want to draw it between the woke and the populist, or between Britain and, you know, its uh, imperialist competitors or whatever, uh, we should be talking about profiteers versus the majority. And I'm, I don't even think that that would require an awful lot from Keir Starmer. Um, let's not forget, for the many, not the few, wasn't Corbyn's slogan in the first place. It was New Labour's slogan. This was Blair's slogan. Um, this kind of populism is completely congruent with moderate social democracy. So, uh, you know, it would be entirely possible to say, we know whose side Truss is on. She's on the side of the billionaire. She's on the side of big businesses. She wants to give them tax cuts. She's cutting taxes in such a way that will benefit the rich. She doesn't care about ordinary people who are really going to suffer. We care about working class people. Or, you know, even if you don't want to talk in those terms, we, we care about working people and their families, that kind of thing. They could do that. No problem at all. But I think for, you know, there's, um, from the point of view, even even in, t- in their own terms internally, they are overcorrecting, right? So they think that Corbyn, Corbynism is a big bad mistake, a huge deviation from uh, what British people historically have voted for. Uh, for. Uh, he was never going to win, etc., etc. But they've ended up um, going so far in the direction of ideological quietism that they've, uh, you know, dropped arms. So, of course, the Conservatives' record on the environment and, and carbon emissions is, is pretty dire. But nonetheless, the Johnson administration was committed to at least making a show about taking the, the issue seriously. But as you say, the new trust government seems to be focused on a bonfire of regulations attacking workers' rights. Do you think that net zero is also likely to be um, a casualty of, uh, of that agenda because it some, seems in some ways more congruent with the general drift of conservative politics to start to, to move to a position which fits with the general sort of hostility to concerns that, that matter to, to liberals and the left? Well, it's telling that almost all Tory candidates deferred to net zero apart from Kimi Badnock and even in the end she declared that she Mm, would be supporting it. So uh, I think that net zero is sufficiently broad and uh, vague in its scope 
that it's entirely possible to declare that one is in favor of this. Besides which, there are some aspects of net zero that are going to be quite useful uh, if you want to stimulate growth, as they say they do. It is problematic from the point of view of a small state. Um, but just look at what's happened in the United States of America. Look at what's happened with Biden. Um, as Adam Tooze has pointed out, this is uh, basically a shift from the Green New Deal to the Green Industrial Complex, because what has happened is that a lot of public money has been spent, but it's been spent on the private sector. It's about private sector initiatives. Um, it's about consumer initiatives. That would be reasonably congruent with uh, a version of uh, Tory ideology. Um, obviously, they're going to have to keep squaring all this with, uh, you know, the traditional demands of uh, fiscal responsibility. You know, you've got to pay for it by taxing someone or you've got to cut spending, etc., etc. But if they wanted to totally reformat the British economy, they could use aspects of net zero to stimulate that. You know, they could, for example, in their free ports, decide that uh, the free ports are going to be hubs of uh, green technological dynamism. I'm not saying that's necessarily what's going to happen, but I'm saying that there, there are ways in which they can make this work with the grain of what they want to do. It won't necessarily, indeed, it won't remotely get close to where we need to be, and it certainly won't bring us to net zero. But I think the era of denialism uh, is over, um, at least, you know, in overt terms. We're now in the era of, let's say, implicatory denial. We're now in the era where, you know, even the fossil giants say we've got to make, make changes. And I think that they would have to catapult themselves quite far to the right. Um, and we're talking about uh, sort of European far right, such as like the Polish government or something, in order to align with, you know, outright denial. We're just going to um, uh, burn to grow and we don't care, etc. So I don't think that will be the direction in which they go. But you never know, because uh, the, we're not necessarily looking at a rational and far-sighted Conservative Party at the moment. On a rather different political leader, on the 30th of August, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former leader of the Soviet Union, who presided over the breakup of the Union and, and the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, died at the age of 91. Predictably, in, in the media, the obituaries were uh, very flattering, uh, focusing on Gorbachev's role in ending the Cold War, uh, opening up Soviet society, and, and for not, as, as, as some of his uh, predecessors had, using um, military force to crush uprisings in Eastern Europe. Now, of course, uh, a lot of that sort of rather skates over his role in the use of military force against the newly independent Lithuania in, in January 1991, and also the disastrous consequences of the process of economic reform that, that at least began under his leadership. One thing that struck me, though, was the very vociferous and, and uh, sort of straightforward condemnation of, of Gorbachev from uh, some people on the left, which I, you know, I couldn't help thinking was maybe partially a sort of overreaction to those very laudatory liberal encomiums. After all, Gorbachev wasn't Yeltsin. His political instincts seemed to be basically uh, social democratic. And if the disaster capitalism of, of, of 90s Russia was the end point of the reform process, it, it certainly doesn't seem that that was what he'd uh, been aiming for, uh, nor for that matter that he desired the breakup of, of the Soviet Union. One other thing that occurred was that some of that criticism seemed to imply that the status quo was was tenable, which given the increasingly apparent failures of the, of the Soviet economy in the 1980s uh, and its inability to match the technological transformation that was occurring in the West at the time, did seem to demonstrate that something at least had to change, even if one doesn't like the direction that was pursued. 
what's your view of Gorbachev and, and also of the of the response to to his death, both in the media but also on on the left? I would say that Gorbachev represented a minority faction within the. I guess we'll call it, for want of a better term, the Stalinist regime, uh, represented the enlightened Muscovite elite in contrast to the provincialist dinosaurs that had dominated under Brezhnev. Um, and I think that he was serious about, I don't think he was so much um, interested in um, deep democratic reform. But I think that he saw that uh, there were major issues here. It was an isolated state that had been forced to build up a disproportionately vast industrial infrastructure organized around military competition, run by about 100 ministries, producing lots of the wrong types of goods, inefficient equipment, very bad at construction, um, bad housing, very bad at services, very bad at distributing goods, very good at pumping out a lot of industrial products, um, you know, uh, surpluses of things that weren't needed. Um, there might have been a time under Khrushchev when something could have been done about that, when growth rates were still very high and the USSR was still very confident. Um, they had this experimentation with cybernetics, could have produced some more efficient signals in the absence of the price mechanism. That would have taken power away from the elites that had been built up under I guess, hote Stalinism. So that never happened. By the 80s, you know, you've got this energy crisis. Um, you've got this uh, draining war in Afghanistan. You've got the blow to elite self-confidence from Chernobyl. And of course, the old elites are, the provincialists are dying out. Um, and you've got these very sluggish growth rates. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you mentioned they're struggling to compete with the West. And that's the most important thing for them. And therefore, the, you know, even though Gorbachev represents a minority, there's a lot of elite openness to possible strategies. The thing is that um, the kinds of uh, elites that clustered around Gorbachev, I don't think that Gorbachev was, uh, you know, um, uh, a right winger in this sense. Um, we can sort of query the uh, viability of these terms. But the underpinning of the sort of statist minority that rallied behind Gorbachev was not the popular movements that started to avail themselves of perestroika, um, but a lot of the new bourgeoisie represented by the likes of the Moscow Times, which was deeply hostile to these movements. It was actually the state personnel, you can read uh, Boris Kargolitsky on this, uh, it was often quite openly Reaganite, openly anti-communist, often Hayekian, layer of intelligentsia and apparatchiks who were in command of the situation. And indeed, some of them said, you know, Reaganism, it's too moderate, it's not going to work, we need to go a lot further, which of course they did. The danger for them was that Gorbachev, in leveraging forms of openness, basically to help unblock the bureaucratic system and to, you know, to make, uh, you know, the, the sort of the Soviet system work more efficiently. He was in a, inadvertently empowering all these popular movements and hoping that their their sort of democratic energy uh, would help get rid of the old establishments who were acting as a block to real reform. But the coup against Gorbachev was driven by those who, as I say, they wanted to go further than uh, Reaganism, ally with the most radical neoliberals in the West, drive through an economic shock, a shock. 
which they hoped would instate competitive private capitalist management, and that that would raise productivity and growth after a short drop in output. Well, we know that didn't happen. Uh, 1.6 million excess deaths in 1990 to 1995. Uh, and then, of course, the Putinite reaction to that. Um, so I think Gorbachev is a, is an ambiguous figure globally. Um, I think, uh, you know, some of the reforms that he helped implement uh, were good for popular forces, even if they uh, those popular forces were thwarted. I think that um, ultimately ending the Cold War, even though you can argue cynically this is based on geopolitical calculation, etc., ending the Cold War, even if it did uh, reduce Russian prestige, which has been a big source of his personal unpopularity in Russia, uh, did result in a much more peaceful world. Um, now, for the left, this is not entirely unproblematic because the collapse of the USSR for millions of people across the world um, meant the collapse of any effective horizon of an alternative to capitalism. It, you know, even if you thought that the USSR uh, was something other than socialism. So, for example, I come from the state capitalist uh, sort of trend of theorizing. We think of the USSR as a, a kind of state capitalism. There are others who would characterize it as what you would call bureaucratic collectivist, um, other sort of theoretical formulations like degenerated worker state, and so on and so on. But whatever you think it was, it n nonetheless upheld the notional possibility for millions of people uh, of uh, uh, an alternative to capitalism, an alternative way of doing things. And that fabric of belief sustained institutions, it sustained publications, it sustained struggles. And so for decades now, um, the effects of what Gorbachev did have been monumentally bad for the left. Um, even if they created openings where uh, some sort of popular movement could have come through. Um, to what extent do you think that was perceived at the time? I mean, the sort of first years when I was acquiring any sort of uh, political awareness at all, you know, the early early 90s. But my sense is that, that for a lot of people on the left, it wasn't perceived that way, that there was a sense that, you know, uh, first the Soviet bloc, then the capitalists. There wasn't that recognition that actually this was going, as you say, going to damage the left in a, in a much broader broader sense because people felt, well, you know, my tradition, whether that's, you know, a sort of Trotskyist tradition or something coming out of anarchist politics or, or, or whatever, isn't implicated with the Soviet project and is, is very different to it and so on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can tell you that the tradition I come from, which uh, vaingloriously calls itself the international socialist tradition, <laughs> um, basically um, uh, looked at this as a great opportunity. You know, Stalinism is dying. That's going to clear the decks. It used to be said, you know, if you said you're a socialist, people say, well, go back to Russia. Well, now that option is off the table. We're not talking about going back to some uh, terrible dictatorship. Um, and there was a lot of optimism and energy, you know, uh, on that part of the left. And indeed, not just that, like a lot of, even if you weren't necessarily uh, of the Trotskyist persuasion, you could see the movements as having the potential to open up something genuinely novel. You know, there were syndicalist tendencies within Eastern Europe and Russia. There were radical trade unions. Uh, there was a lot of uh, autonomous leftism, and it was felt that there was an element of the spirit of 68 being reborn here. Um, so there was uh, some optimism about that. Now, I think that uh, it's it's worth um, sort of keeping open the fact that that didn't have to be defeated. 
um, the, the, you know, the West didn't have to prevail so completely uh, in its designs for restructuring uh, uh, Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. Um, but that is, in, in fact, what happened. And so, you know, the, the left was, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of describe how swiftly what was once a concrete reality with institutions and with an associated fabric of belief went from being that to being an unlikely past, an improbable sort of deviation from uh, a much more plausible uh, sort of future of uh, capitalism in perpetuity. Um, you know, so that's... Um, I think that there was a lot of understandable and justifiable hope. And I think there was also a need to say, look, um, however this plays out, we have opposed this system for years, uh, for those parts of the left who did. We, uh, you know, have all had different kinds of criticism of this. We did not want it to survive. We wanted it to be overthrown in one way or another. Even if we think the people who are overthrowing it are thugs, even if uh, we don't like Yeltsin, even if we uh, lament the crushing of the popular movements that were briefly empowered by Perestroika, all of that stuff, nonetheless, we're not going to shed a single tear for this uh, nightmarish uh, and absurdist regime that's just fallen apart. Uh, maybe that was necessary. Do you think that, you know, as, as, as I said earlier, that quite uncomplicated condemnation of Gorbachev that, that seems pretty prevalent on the left at the moment, do you think that's related to the total kind of eclipsing of historical memory of the other possibilities that there were in the 1990s, that there were other currents amongst the opposition, that there were uh, leftist currents in Eastern Europe, there were the, you know, the syndicalist movements you, you describe and people interested in workers' control of industry and that, and, and that sort of thing. And that because that was, you know, entirely sort of obliterated and, and obliterated from historical memory, then Gorbachev becomes an entirely negative figure and, and that all he did was to you know, impoverish people. Yeah, I think that there's an element of that. I think there's also an element of backlash uh, because uh, quite clearly um, a lot of the people who uh, supported uh, the sort of reform of Russia and the Eastern Bloc and they championed the popular movements either were sort of neoliberals at the time or at least liberals who were tailing the neoliberals, or uh, they ended up going in that direction. And, you know, also there's, I think, a general sort of turn back to the state. Um, and you can see that, you know, the decades of distrust of hierarchy, of centralized authority and of organization, which resulted in a kind of a baseline anarcho-reformist consciousness, um, that has been, to some extent, discredited. There's a backlash against that. And at the extreme end of that, you can see a certain revival of Stalinist ideologies, uh, or at least, uh, you know, people re-evaluating re their position on those old regimes and wondering if possibly there was something historically progressive and defensible about them. Um, I would say that about that, though, that actually, um, for all that it comes with a certain swagger and ostensible militancy, it represents a kind of uh, disavowed defeatism. Because if you're saying essentially, in the name of historical progress, the best that could have been done would have been these regimes that, uh, you know, were so desperately unpopular, um, 
so desperately inefficient and so desperately brutal. And, you know, there's maybe even a certain romance about those regimes, uh, which is in contrast to how they were lived. If you were living under the Stasi or, you know, uh, if you were a victim of one of the secret police agencies, you didn't have that kind of romanticism. And also, you know, not just that, but also culturally stagnant, um, just so such unviable societies. If you're saying that that was really the best that could have been done, you're really... Uh, admitting to yourself that historical possibilities are a lot bleaker um, than one might have hoped, uh, and that therefore we're no longer in the domain of um, liberation as described by Marx and Engels and you know 19th century revolutionaries and socialists and anarchists and so on, we're in a much more pared down, uh, much more circumscribed environment in which uh, we can choose between various iterations of uh, free market capitalism and various kinds of statist capitalism. Uh, and that, to me, uh, I, I, that's not very appealing to me. When we last spoke, um, I think the last time we spoke was early summer. And since then, we've seen globally a, a range of very serious environmental shocks. In the UK, of course, we saw the, the breaking of the temperature record during the heat wave. Most disastrously, of course, recently, we've seen the flooding in Pakistan with over a third of the country under underwater after the unusually intense uh, monsoon rains. And, you know, it certainly felt to me that the pace of environmental change, it feels at least on an everyday level as if it's increasing, you know, it feels like it's more more in the news. And, and obviously a question as to whether that's to do with just greater environmental coverage than there, there was previously. But there does feel this sense of an, of an accelerating process, more dramatic change happening uh, more quickly than, than had been supposed by some people. What do we actually know about the, uh, the, the pace of change in this regard? Well, there's a number of things we can say about that. I mean, first of all, and just in terms of a broad background, um, the World Economic Forum uh, did a study uh, a few years ago, uh, which concluded that the rate of natural disasters in 2019 was three times that in 1989. Um, now, of course, that, you know, those figures should be taken with a pinch of salt, because what are you classifying as a natural disaster, etc., etc.? Uh, but we can also talk specifically about causes. You know, when we talk about the floods in Pakistan, uh, usually the winds come in from the southwest um, and they bring uh, moist air from the sea um, and that results in the monsoon rains and it's pretty good for farming. But the increased global temperature means that a lot more water is being evaporated at sea, um, more water held in the atmosphere and therefore more intense rain. So rainfall uh, this year was three times the national average over the last three decades. It seems self-evident to me that this is related to climate change. Combine that with the problem of um, the melting of the glaciers, which is another major uh, contributor to the immersion of a third of Pakistan in water. Um, this is devastating. You know, uh, agriculture um, employs about 40% of Pakistanis, but you've had 90% of the crops damaged, 2 million acres of farmland uh, put, uh, dis destroyed by water. Um, and Pakistan's already suffering quite a lot. You know, the, it's got some of the worst inflation rates in the world, 43% recently. Large part of that has been the increasing food prices and energy prices due to other forms of ecological blowback taking place uh, in recent years, um, and that producing its own form of political chaos. Uh, Imran Khan has been ousted, partly because of the uh, inflation crisis, partly because he antagonized the military. Um, he's threatening civil war. Um, and the global response 
has been, uh, you know, initially quite lackluster. I mean, the US initially said, we'll give you a million dollars. And that's a fraction of the estimated $10 billion cost of this disaster. I mean, there has been an uptick in donations recently. But I think in the background, it's a failure of the COP summits. It's a failure to even deliver the 100 billion global climate fund, you remember, which was supposed to help um, uh, sort of poorer countries to adapt. Um, and it's a failure in the um, refusal to implement serious uh, mitigatory measures. Um, the irony is that Pakistan is getting closer to the People's Republic of China, um, you know, in terms of its, um, or at least under Khan it was, we don't know where, where it's going to go now, um, in terms of its military alliances and commercial alliances and so on, the Belt and Roads Initiative. Um, and the People's Republic of China is going to be a major contributor um, and already is uh, the top co- contributor on an annual basis uh, to emissions. And that's going to warm uh, Pakistan's climate up even more. So we're in a world where the choices um, facing a country like Pakistan are extremely poor um, and where the uh, structure of what I called implicatory denialism um, is so ingrained in policymaking, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that we can de- defer this because um, increasingly states act like corporations. Corporations think uh, the next five or six years ahead in terms of the rate of return. They don't think 50 years ahead. And so we're going to, you're right, I mean, we're seeing an, an acceleration of these uh, problems, uh, and we're going to see more of that. The rate of natural disasters, I said, is increasing. But also, one of the things that we can sort of talk about this in terms of um, is what Jason W. Moore calls negative value. You know, when capitalism starts producing byproducts that actually destroy its uh, potential profit, its potential surplus value. And that's what we're having. Um, I refer to the concept of wild energy, um, wherein uh, the energy released by uh, these intensifying global floods, storms, um, wildfires, and so on, uh, is actually far greater in, in quantity than the energy that we use to power our um, economy. So, for example, the 2020 floods in China release more destructive energy than the world used in electricity during the same period. Um, so uh, that's that's a, a long-term trend in the sort of uh, energy economic system. Um, and uh, we all kind of know that that's happening. We all know roughly what needs to be done about it. But there is uh, currently, of course, um, an obstacle, uh, an obstruction in terms of uh, figuring out the best repertoire of organization and tactics. So that's where we are. And countries like Pakistan are paying... Um, the most horrendous price for this. Have you been surprised by the relative lack of coverage, um, not just in the in the in the mainstream media, but on on the left as well? Yeah, I I haven't uh, seen a lot uh, about it in the in the left wing sort of press, and I guess one of the things about this is that it's very hard to know what to say that is isn't hasn't been said a hundred million times before. You know, certainly I think David Wallace Wells has covered this. I wouldn't necessarily characterize him as being on the left, but his arguments are certainly compatible with left-wing arguments. And uh, I think that there are some uh, on the ecological uh, left who have been uh, covering this. Um, but also I think that um, maybe there's uh, there's 
there's not an institutionalized structure for overcoming our ingrained ignorance. So, for example, uh, you know, when I was in the SWP, if something like this happened in Pakistan, somebody had to go and do research. And I'm not saying that the results, the resulting article or whatever would be any good, but they had to do the research. They had to try and figure out what the hell's going on here. Um, why is there such high rates of inflation? Why is there such political chaos? How did this crisis come about? And of course, you know, at the end, you know, this, this is a result of the world capitalist system and its uh, contradictions, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, at least there's some institutionalized mechanism there for forcing people to pay attention to stuff uh, that is normally uh, not uh, foregrounded in uh, the social industry spectacle. Whereas if you, I mean, you saw a lot more people commenting about Joe Lycett and his performance on um, Kunzberg's uh, dreadful new BBC show. Um, and that's because it's easy to opine about. It takes almost no time at all to come up with a, a, a view about that. And, you know, occasionally you might even come up with something witty and informative to say about it. Um, but it's very hard to be, um, to opine in an informed um, and sensible way about um, floods in Pakistan, when the left has not really been paying that much attention to Pakistani internal politics, um, you know, particularly since um, you know the at attention was taken away from the war on terror and it, you know Pakistan's uh, centrality to that. So I think we've lost some of our internationalism, um, uh, you know, partly due to the fact that we now have. Um, let's say, quite urgent battles with our own ruling class, um, and uh, that those battles are largely domestic. Um, and I would hope that um, as the ecological left gains and grows in scale and uh, develops a, a more um, a thicker network of organizations and networks and um, uh, whatever else you want to call it, I would hope that that revives the international spirit that saw us, for example, campaign against third world debt, campaign against the war in Iraq, you know, campaign against the um, overthrow of Aristide in Haiti, all of this stuff that uh, was absolutely central to the left a couple of decades ago or less than that. Um, uh, I would hope that we would develop a similarly uh, international scope in the future. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.